So we've been practicing here together for a bit over a day, really, since our time since we got arrived. And uh, I think it's interesting when we enter into this process of being on retreat, engaging with the the different forms of sitting, walking, the yoga. That we we often find at the end of the day, or not even quite the end of the day, it's kind of like we're worn out. I was struck as I walked in how um, it was a little bit like a sort of a battlefield almost. <laughs> and there was all these sort of casualties strewn amongst the, uh, the sort of the piles of cushions and blankets, and a few of them managed to stir themselves and sit up, and, uh, which I was appreciative of and grateful for. Uh, Interestingly, the Buddha, in one of the instructions he gave to his uh, his monks and his nuns was that he prohibited them from giving a Dharma talk to people who were lying down. Um, unless they were injured or ill or in some way incapacitated, so that they needed to be lying down. And so um, I'm not bound by that particular cons- sort of uh, obligation, but I think there's something in the way in which sometimes we, we, we naturally want to just, oh, can I just take it easy here and uh, of course you need to make your own call as to what's needed for your body what your body's able to sustain but there is something helpful about a certain degree of uprightness and hearing and receiving the, uh, the teachings of the Buddha and we call the Dharma and and, um, and yet of course sometimes we, we kind of hesitate or we resist I'm reminded of a of a cartoon from the uh, uh, I think, uh, North American cartoonist Watters, Watterson, uh, Calvin and Hobbes. Are you familiar with Calvin and Hobbes? It's it's been a while since it was sort of in the newspapers, I think. But uh, involves uh, you know I think a five or six year old boy and his pet or stuffed tiger, depending whether you're inside his mind or looking at it from an adult perspective. Um, but his his dear friend, um, so Calvin and his friend Hobbes, and um, much of it takes place inside their mind, or inside Calvin's mind, it seems. But anyway, on this particular occasion, you could say, Calvin and Hobbes are sitting and watching television. And you can see they're both fascinated with what's on the screen. This was probably drawn in the days before he would have had a little device that he'd been looking at. But in those days, he was looking at a television. And, uh, and his mum's voice comes from across, you know, the other side of the frame. Calvin, go outside and play. And no response. And they're still sitting there. Calvin, I said, go outside and play. And still, as Calvin and Hobbes the tiger sitting there, eyes glued to the screen. And then in the next frame, you see Calvin and Hobbes flying through the air. Obviously, having been thrown outside. Um, and as they, as they fly out into the world, Calvin's retort in response to this being forced to go outside is, it's too real. <laughs> and I think it's a really helpful response to reflect on that sense of how it is for us in our lives, for many of us at least some of the time, for some of us it can feel like much of the time, that it's challenging, it's, you know, in our face, it's intense, it can be painful or harsh, it can certainly be complicated, and we find it not easy. And the kind of the tendency is to want to somehow pull in and find something that's sort of soothing and entertaining and pleasant and not demanding, and just kind of, in a way, go to sleep there. That's kind of an understanding response to that challenging nature of human experience. And if we reflect on this, we see it's to do with the fact we're very sensitive. We're, as, 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 as living creatures, as beings, as humans, as we are, we feel things deeply, and it's not easy to find ease and comfort in this world. So the urge to want to withdraw, to become numb, or to sometimes use meditation as a way of escaping or avoiding our experience. This is kind of understandable that we might want to get a safe distance from or somehow subdue or control what's going on. And 
of course, sometimes you know meditation is presented as being sort of that's what you do it for, that's what you get from it, and a kind of a sort of a transactional relationship to yeah, if I do this, I'm going to get something. Well, I'm only going to do it if I can get that. Is kind of it's maybe not exactly how we think about it, but at some level, that kind of attitude easily underpins how we engage with things and how we might be engaging with coming on a retreat. Sometimes we want to, you know, really gather and focus our mind because we imagine that in that in that unification, in that concentration, in that focus, we won't be so impacted, we won't be so touched. And that we imagine this will be the basis or the way in which we find the peace, the ease and the sense of inner space and release that we are looking for, perhaps, longing for, perhaps. And yet, the true nature of spiritual practice and the practices we're engaged in here is, is, is not about escaping our experience. It's not about finding some way to insulate ourselves from our life or our experience, but understanding and exploring for ourselves what it means to open to it, open fully. And that includes allowing our heart to be touched, to be tender. Because what we will notice, and part of what we encounter when we come into a situation like this, is in a way the, the impact or the outcome, or we could say even the results, of how our life experience has been and how we have lived our life or responded to that. And for, for many of us, the experience of what is difficult, painful, or uncomfortable, unwanted in some way, leads us to an unconscious contraction, tightening, and hardening. A kind of armouring ourselves in a self-protective way against the experience of life that we find uneasy, that we find unwanted. And it seems somehow safer for us to become numb, or to be distant, or to be disconnected from what's going on. And of course... This may have been necessary for us as an appropriate survival strategy at times in our lives, particularly perhaps when we were young infants or small children and having no capacity really to handle and manage experience in more sort of uh, skillful ways. We, 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 we survive, we're saying, just by, by shutting down, by closing off, by tightening up. And, and there's nothing that we need to judge in this, but to see that, of course, it's something profoundly limiting if we continue to enact that patterning and that tendency in an ongoing way in our lives. The the effect of it, the way in which we become sort of numb or disconnected, or we, we actually lose the sensitivity that gives us so much of the richness, the sweetness, the sense of beauty and delight, that this is only available to us when we're open to be touched, when we're available to be impacted. And yet, of course, in that openness, we don't get to choose always what comes in. Because we don't get to choose the habitual, the unconscious, and in a way it's you know, survival mechanism, biological survival mechanisms that suggest tightening up, tightening up. The, uh, you know, the, the mechanisms, we can trace them back and see that, oh, actually... In terms of our our evolution, what we come from is you know relatively complicated living organisms as forms of life that began as single cells and floating around in the oceans as they were. So we understand you know, origins of life as far as we know, at least going that far back, quite a while. That they're just little 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 sacks of juice floating around in a big pool of liquid. And though when coming into contact with something nourishing, kind of relaxing and opening, allowing the membrane of the little cell to be porous so as to draw in the nourishment. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, lovely. But then, of course, if there's something toxic or dangerous around, having to tighten the membrane and contract it to stop that getting in, to survive. And that, that kind of basic contraction expansion mechanism is there as a survival tool for the for the little cells that were the you know the first forms of life as we know it, as far as we understand. And that, of course, these rather more complicated and we sometimes think advanced, I'm not always convinced about that, but in certain ways certainly um, developed um, forms of life are just, you know, billions of those little cells that tighten up, 
But in the tightness of trying to protect ourselves, we become unable to receive the nourishment, to take in the nourishment. And I'm not just talking here about material nourishment, which is obviously the situation for the little cell floating in the ocean or in the water. And there's a, there's a sense of loss, I think, that we feel, that we know. We might not recognise it as that. We might not understand it as such. But that sense of, of somehow my life not quite filling my sense of what could be possible or the, the way in which we can be hungry for more, even though most of us have actually quite a lot. In fact, maybe we'd even say plenty or more than enough. And yet somehow it doesn't quite fulfil something in us. And so part of the journey of, of, of practice, of meditation, of spiritual exploration is uh, making contact with this tender capacity, this way in which we can allow ourselves to be touched, to be affected. And there's something scary about it. It's not an easy thing, and yet it's necessary. It's necessary. And so this process of just sitting or walking or moving our bodies and the postures and the explorations of our different practices with the, the invitation to keep coming into contact with the felt experience, keep turning towards what's happening, keep noticing what it's like for you right here, right now. And seeing that, of course, we're ambivalent about that because some of what we have to notice doesn't feel easy isn't comfortable, feels scary or painful or difficult, unwanted, unwished for. And yet, as we come into contact, as we more and more turn towards, as we return, the sensory return is like turning back towards, coming back into contact with our experience, which isn't always particularly fascinating or delightful, but of course sometimes can be remarkable. As we do this, it's, it's like we bring, and it's the sweet experiences, the, the painful experiences, the ordinary experiences. <coughs> Some of what goes on, of course, is not just that experiences are difficult for us, it's that vast amounts of experiences is completely uninteresting to us. And therefore we kind of disconnect or we turn away. And in that sense, again, just re- reject the ordinariness of a moment of experience, a breath that was appears to be just the same as the breath I had a moment ago. Why on earth do I want to pay attention to that? We might think. And yet, of course, if you take a moment to reflect on it, you realize that if that breath didn't come, you'd very quickly become interested. It's like, you know, where's my next breath? And of course, you know, of course, one day that breath will not come. We know that. We don't often reflect on it. We don't think too much about it, but most of us won't know that this one that comes is the one that's not going to be followed by another one. It doesn't come with a sign. It's the last one. Enjoy it. And it's sort of like, oh, if we, we, we see some of our more ordinary, simple experience in that, in that context, then suddenly we might also feel more interested, more engaged, more willing to turn towards it. Because it's actually remarkable that it's happening at all, that we're here. It's existing in some inexplicable, mysterious and remarkable way. And that as we, as we turn towards, as we come back, as we find our way into contact, consciously into contact with our experience. And we, we begin, of course, in the simplifying, the focusing and the gathering, the way we've spoken about, of just keeping it primarily to the body as a way of simplifying and steadying the heart and the mind. But also because the body is often the way in to a more intimate contact with our experience. And as we... As we pay attention, as we come into contact, it's like bringing moisture into a place of dry, compacted soil where there's not a lot of life or growth sometimes. It's like we, we actually, in paying attention to it, it, it brings life back in to what is in our lack of attending to, in our lack of consciously inhabiting, what has become arid. And therefore, in its aridity, even less attractive or sort of inviting to us at some level. 
And we can see that that, of course, becomes something that amplifies and escalates as we start to become distant for ourselves. It's more difficult and less comfortable to be in contact with ourselves, and therefore we become even further distant with ourselves and from ourselves. So there's this process of becoming conscious of inhabiting our experience of sensing directly and intimately into our life is one that requires a certain courage and a quality of nobility in fact of 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 an uprightness of of and nobility of spirit says i'm willing to encounter that which is not easy whether because painful or scary or just because not particularly entertaining or exciting to and yet I understand there's a deeper value in the connection, in the sensitivity, in the making contact with my life moment by moment. Not living at the, the distance of the mind that the mind creates by thinking about and abstracting conceptually in time and in space ideas and images about my life. But actually this is my life. This is what it is right now. Your life too. It's this. Life isn't something happening after the retreat when you go home. It's this. And this is at the heart of the life that's before and after this time too. But the only place we can meet it is here. The only place we can actually be touched by and transformed by it is here and now. So... When we allow ourselves to be intimate, it's interesting what happens. And it never sort of ceases to amaze me in a way how I can resist going out in the rain. Now, I don't know if any of you experience that today. It's raining, so I don't want to go out in that. It's the thought that arises. And I know, because I've done it so many times, that actually if I go out in the rain, often it's really lovely. Even if I don't have a, a raincoat, I mean, I do have a raincoat, but even without it, just going out for a little while and just seeing, oh, that idea that I have that it's cold, that it's wet, that it'll be miserable, that's possibly associated to the idea that, well, yeah, if you get really cold and really wet, you could die of hypothermia, but that's really quite unlikely here at Guy House where you're just two minutes away from, from a hot drink and a, and a duvet, you know. But still that, oh, I don't want to go out. And then actually just... Relaxing, softening. Oh, actually, wow, it's so nice out here. And, and the sense of the almost oppressiveness of withdrawing into the four walls, the sense of safety and shelter. It's like a metaphor for the way we withdraw into what is familiar and comfortable, but somehow stultified or deadening or, or just dulling of the vitality of our existence. And so to feel the wind and the... And the, the the power of the, the gales. It wasn't just wind in the last 24 hours, but strong weather and the rain and the, the you know, being amongst the trees, being buffeted, or the, the you know, the, the other creatures finding shelter as they can. There's a, there's a way in which that brings a sense of aliveness, a sense of willingness to open in the face of what is challenging because one starts to remember, to recognize, to understand the cost of closing down. It means taking a risk. You know, it sounds like it should be simple. Come along, sit down, pay attention to your body and your breathing and get up, walk back and forth a little bit, sit down again, do some nice slow movements where you're told exactly what to do and invited not to try too hard. You know? <laughs> How is it that we got to the end of the day and we're lying about like we're completely wiped out? If we were to tell our friends about it, they wouldn't believe us. They'd say, no way that could have been hard. But we know it's hard. Because a lot of it requires us to go against certain patterns and conditions and tendencies. The process of coming back into the present moment again and again it requires us to go against the habitual momentum of distractedness, of busyness, of striving, of trying to get somewhere to perform, to produce, to create, to make a better version of myself or the world or my meditation or my yoga or whatever it is that I think I'm supposed to be doing. And there's a kind of a, a weariness from that. Because most of us, we've been doing it much of our lives. And it never comes to an end. You know, just try to get somewhere to become someone to 
produce something and whatever we get or produce or whoever we become, somehow within that paradigm it's never quite enough or good enough or far enough or big enough or right enough. It never stops because it's premised on a mistake, on a misunderstanding that suggests that what's already here, that what we already are, that what's already available isn't enough or isn't as it should be when in fact what's here and what we are is more than we can possibly conceive and understand. But that's not something we can get just by the language or the words or the concepts of it. And so the invitation to be present and open, it's like, well, it sounds like a good idea for part of me that thinks, yeah, I want to meditate and I'd like to learn how to you know, practice yoga and to, to be present it makes a lot of sense to me. But we have to take account of that part of us that is not convinced. If you're wondering why it doesn't just happen like that, like, oh, let's be mindful, oh, then we're just mindful all day. But it doesn't happen like that, does it? I mean, let me know if it did for you. That would be great. I'd be happy to hear. Um, it's not impossible, but it's just not what usually happens. Because there's all sorts of other parts of what's going on in here, which is a, you know, a multifaceted phenomena, we'd have to say, this human being. I'm really not convinced at all I want to feel things that are uncomfortable. Or absolutely wedded to the idea that I should have this kind of experience. Like I should be able to come here and have it the way I've been told it's supposed to be. So that easily for us the tendency is to kind of go into battle. Battle with our experience, battle with ourselves. And I think this this tendency is sometimes fed by some of the language that we find in the teachings of the Buddha who um, he did speak in quite sort of fierce language at times with regard to how we might engage in practice and I think usefully but also in ways that have limitations and you know one of the one of the often quoted sort of metaphors that he used for this process of engaging with our hearts and our minds he said it's like doing battle with a thousand warriors on a thousand battlefields a thousand times and it's like Okay, so we get why it looks a bit like that in here afterwards, you know. There's sort of, some bodies strewn everywhere after all the battle. Um, and there's a certain validity to that image, you know. And again, there's a sort of a noble spiritual warrior archetype we might draw on that involves some degree of courage in facing our experience and facing what's limiting in our patterning and our habits and our tendencies. And yet, I also find myself reflecting at times on the fact that, you know, the um, the Buddha came from a a socio-economic group, the the warrior um, caste, as it was called, as called of of his part of uh, what's now North India in this world. And so he would have thought in terms of warrior kind of metaphors, because that's the world he came from. And I sometimes think, well, what if he came from the merchant class? You know, would he have described this process of training our hearts and minds? He might have said, well, maybe it's like negotiating a thousand purchase contracts with a thousand suppliers a thousand times. And if you've ever had to do anything like that, you realize, oh, yeah, that would be pretty hard work as well. Or, or you know, if it was from the servant caste, if he'd come from that, he might have said, it was like, well, it's a bit like having to clean a thousand toilets a thousand, and a thousand palaces a thousand times. And yeah, yeah, actually, it's a bit like that sometimes, isn't it? And, this process. Or maybe if he came from the, 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 the sort of the, the spiritual Brahman class or caste, he might have said, Oh, it's like having to offer a thousand prayers to a thousand deities a thousand times. And I find it really interesting just to contemplate how those different metaphors evoke a different kind of response. And I think it's helpful because sometimes the warrior response is necessary. But sometimes it might actually be more that, okay, this is, this is the toilet cleaning response, okay. Sort of like, let's just do this, we need to do it, it's not going to be pleasant, but there we are. When it's done, we're going to feel a lot better, and we're going to be happier to have guests. <laughs> and that, and it's sort of like, oh, okay, yeah, that's nice, that's interesting. This sense of, what's the way of engaging with your experience that's needed right here? And if our habit is to always to go into battle, sometimes we need to learn to just back off 
And in our culture, and, and certainly the culture of much of the European Western world, the tendency to, to battle, to go in quite aggressively, harshly, judgmentally is, is deeply established in many of us, if not all of us. And so it's really important to bring kindness, to bring a, a gentleness, to bring a softness into the process and to not make undue demands of our experience. To see with our body that it can't just adapt or reorganize itself around what we would like it to do or how we would like it to be. And we experience discomfort, sometimes weariness, sometimes agitation in our bodies, sometimes strong pain, maybe connected with posture, maybe connected with injury or illness, other medical conditions, or maybe not connected with any, anything we can, we can recognize, sometimes just patterns of holding, contraction, or just, it just hurts sometimes. And to see, can we, can we bring kindness to our body? Can we be gentle with this, this living system? Because this quality of giving attention to is the primary expression of nourishment and love for our body. Of course, food and you know, taking care of diet and exercise and rest is essential. But in terms of inner well-being, the, the deeper nourishment is actually attention, kind attention. And often we're starved of it. Often we've not been encouraged, trained or supported to actually be able to offer that to ourselves. Part of what we encounter when we when we begin doing this is, is a sort of a resistance. It's like, oh, I'm not sure I quite deserve my own attention. I'm not quite sure I've, you know, somehow earned the right to simply abide with me without having to do something to produce something to, to somehow establish that my existence here is validated, is worthy, is okay, is acceptable, will be appreciated by others. And it's like just, oh yeah, it's not easy to open to ourselves, to our bodies. And some of this is because we tend to blame ourselves so much for how it is, for the mistakes we've made, and we've all made mistakes. At times we've failed, we've lost things that we wished we didn't lose. And so we also have to forgive ourselves, profoundly and deeply forgive ourselves for the, the situations of our life that maybe we feel we might have been able to do differently. The truth is, of course, we couldn't. We couldn't have done anything differently, because whatever it is we needed to understand to show us that we could have done that differently, we only got from doing it the way we did it. There's a, there's a great um, story of a Zen student who is very excited about having the opportunity to go and uh, meet the great master from their tradition and um, very much loved and respected but also rather feared um, and because of their the reputation for some fierceness. And so the, the, the student went along to the master and she's sitting there in meditation upright and not looking particularly friendly. So he goes up to her and he bows three times as the tradition and he says... Master, I, I just just have one question. Can you tell me what's the most important thing to cultivate? She looks at him and says, hmm. Wise judgment, good discernment. He says, oh yes, yes, thank you. Yes, discernment, judgment, good judgment, yes. Yes, he says, thank you. Oh, how, how, do, you, how, do, you, how do you develop good judgment and wise discernment? She looks at him, hmm. Experience. She says, oh, of course, of course, thank you, thank you. How do you get experience? <clears throat> Bad judgment. <laughs> it's our life, isn't it? We can't have learned what we've learned except by going through the things whereby we learned it. And when we see that, I think it's really helpful to 
bring an understanding. The process of what we call mistakes, for which we often find it hard to accept or forgive ourselves, is because we're actually not finished yet. We're not grown up. Well, physically we might have finished growing, but our development as human beings is ongoing, hopefully. Of course, that's not guaranteed if we don't engage with it. But wherever we are yet to understand how to skillfully respond to things, we inevitably will do things in a way that show us what is and, unfortunately, also what isn't helpful. And the process of learning is facilitated by giving ourselves permission to engage in that process, not somehow thinking we're supposed to have always got it right the first time, because we can't, we don't. There's a kind of a blindness that we have to work with, that is part of the, in a way, the, the cloudiness of human consciousness, both individually and equally collectively. So much of what plays out that we see as unskillful or as harmful, and it's sometimes, of course, easier to see it in others or at a distance than it is to see it in ourselves. Sometimes it's also easy to forgive it in others than it is to forgive it in ourselves. But to see that, oh, this is, this is, you know, what the Buddha spoke about, avidya, blindness, not actually seeing what causes suffering and harm, not understanding what leads to happiness and peace. And in that not understanding, struggling at times to know how to proceed. When we recognize that we're in a process of learning still, and we understand that in a certain way life is something that we have to hold in the spirit of when we were young, we were in, in, in the spirit of children who play as a way of learning. Not to say that it's all just play, not making it casual or dismissing it in that way, but saying, like, oh, we have to try things out with permission to get it wrong and learn from that and try again. There's no other way we genuinely learn. If we could be told how to do it, if it could be written down and handed out, we'd just do that. We'd hand it out. You could go home. We could go home. It doesn't work that way. It's only through going through the processes of what we do that isn't helpful and doing it and making it conscious that we start to understand it and therefore start to be able to explore other ways of responding, of engaging, of being in our lives and seeing what they might offer to us. And so one of the things that happens as we, as we turn, as we open, as we explore our experience, and not the, oh, so one of the things, not, not the totality, but one of the things is we actually encounter that which is not easy. And often we think, you know, it's not easy. Well, that's obviously because I'm doing it wrong. Because everyone else seems to be doing okay. No one else seems to be having these troubles that I'm having. We think in those terms so quickly, so easily. And one of the you know, powerful and profound elements or foundations of the Buddha's teachings is to just to contemplate, to turn our attention to what he called dukkha, to that which is hard to bear. And to recognise the universality of that in all human beings, in all lives. That we all have that element, not all of our life, but those elements within our life that are hard to bear that are not easy for us. And you know, the, the translation of the, the word the Buddha used, dukkha, is often translated as suffering, which is sort of useful and sort of limited because it doesn't quite give the full picture. It's, that's equally to do with, it's not just what is painful and difficult, but it's also the way in which we feel unfulfilled in the sense of where our potential has not yet, where our sense of possibility isn't somehow experiencing its fulfillment in the way we might imagine or have a sense it could. And, you know, the Buddha talked about the condition of the human body as subject to birth, ageing, sickness and death. That's like, you know, do we contemplate that? See, having a body, we're going to have it, and if we go through this, if we have this, it's challenging, it's difficult. Birth is not easy for, for mothers or for, for babies. Aging is not easy, and it starts quite soon after we turn up. 
The first few years are good, mostly, hopefully, if we're lucky, not for everyone, of course, in terms of the body being reasonably well. Not always, but for many. And then it stops being kind of something that's growing and starts to be something that's slowly wearing out. I used to sometimes, the Buddha talks about Buddha, about birth, ageing, sickness and death as the traditional sort of translation. I always used to wonder, why? Why did it go in that order? Because the Buddha's sort of teaching is remarkably methodical in so many ways. I always think, but I got sick a long time before I ever got into what I thought was ageing. You know, as a kid I got ill, I remember having a flu and being really miserable, you know. And actually, the translation's misleading to say birth, ageing, sickness, death. Actually, the translation is much more useful if we understand it as birth, ageing, decay, and death. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, those things that aren't, it's not so much sickness, it's that kind of things that aren't going to get better, you know, tooth decay. You can sometimes fix that, it's the one I always think of, but I've got a tooth that's not coming back, you know, it's gone. It's just going to be a hole there, I guess. And there's other things that, oh yeah, my body doesn't do what it used to do. And actually, you know, it's been over half a century it's been going. I'm imagining it's got quite a way to go here. It's not guaranteed either, but, you know, it's, gosh, where does it go from here? We can ask those questions, you know, pretty time, pretty much any time after we're out of our teens, they start to show up. At least that's how I remember it. So, oh, well, that's, 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 that's not easy. And of course... Decay is one thing, death is another. It's like, oh, okay. Hmm, yeah, it's not probably going to be an easy thing. And the Buddha spoke of the journey of our hearts, the life of our hearts, having a body, we're subject to birth, ageing, sickness, death, having this resonant sensitivity that cares, that feels. He said, we were subject at times to sorrow, to pain, to grief, to lamentation and despair. It's like, oh, gosh, okay. Hmm, that doesn't sound really like an advertisement for a meditation retreat. You know, we don't put it on the brochure. Come along, you too can experience sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. You know, um, and yet there is something liberating about recognizing, oh, this is actually what we encounter as human beings. Inevitably, if, and this is how I understand it, it's not avoidable. It's, it's not avoidable, this, because essentially, if we care about anything, or love anything, or love someone in this life, at some point we'll be separated from them, or that thing. It will happen through accident, through choice, through, through death. And if we love something, we'll feel sorrow and loss and grief and despair. And of course, if we don't love something or someone in this life, that is profoundly sad and painful and grievous and desperate as a condition. I can't see a third option. And so it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's actually part of what it means to love, is also to experience loss. Because we care about our life, we also feel what is painful about how it's not as we would have wished it to be. This is natural. And the Buddha went on to talk about the condition of our, our mind, what it is to have a... A, a, a mind where we're sometimes associated with what we don't like. Or we're separated from what we love. Or we just don't get what we want. And so it's not easy for us. And it's important to contemplate this because, I mean, feel free to put your hand up. I couldn't. But put your hand up and say, no, no, I don't experience any of that in my life. It just doesn't happen for me. You know, sounds tough, but, you know. It's not my, not my story. You know, I imagine it might be a bit embarrassing if it was the truth and you might not want to say, but I'd be happy to hear for you, happy for you if it was the case. But I just don't think anyone can really put their hand up there. It's like this is something we all participate in. And seeing that means that no matter what you've done with your life, that aspect of it isn't your fault. It can't be. It's in the nature of our lives that we have this. Not just this, because of course there is beauty, there is love, there is sweetness, there is magic and mystery and nobility in so many ways in our lives, in our world. But that's 
not often or not always what we find our experience being configured by because the way our tendency is to react to that which is difficult. And yet if we can open to it, rather than react to it, closing down, pushing away, trying to disconnect or just shut down, if we can open to it, we see that we don't need to judge ourselves for this because it's universal. We each have our own version of it. Of course, no one's particular version of it is the same as mine or as yours. But everyone has a version of it that's recognisable. If we should share it, if we should hear about it from each other. And that when we open in the face of this, rather than withdraw or close down, that there's actually, although there's something deeply painful at times, there's also something profoundly sweet or poignant in that. The heart is pierced in its opening, allowing that which is not easy to bear, allowing that in, turning towards, being willing, showing the courage and the, 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 really the, the, the beautiful and noble aspiration to say, yes, I will sit here with my life. I will come back into contact with my body, my heart, my mind, my experience again and again. I will do that. This is a profound kindness and an expression of a profound respect and valuing for our life. It doesn't mean we have this thought all the time, oh yeah, I really value it, it's really great, that moment of boredom or that feeling of sleepiness or that aching knee. No, but it's not actually our talk. The mind talk might be saying, I don't like it. But the walk that we're walking, in terms of walking or enacting the deeper value, it's the giving attention to is actually the deeper valuing. Even if some part of us is going, I don't really want to do this, that part of us just says, no, let's just go there and be here anyway. Let's just turn up one more time. Let's just go into the hall and sit down, even though we'd really rather curl up with a you know, hot drink and a sofa and pull the duvet over our head. But we don't. We come along. And that is powerful. The power of it doesn't always show in the experience that happens as a result. But it's shown in the way in which something in us begins to recalibrate, to reorient, to actually start to align with what brings the deeper happiness and well-being in our life. And over time that shows. Over time that starts to come through. Because what we will notice is as we open and start to learn to handle our habitual tendency to withdraw or close down or push away that which is difficult, as we learn to open to, as we learn to breathe with and soften around those patterns of reactivity, to not judge ourselves for the reactivities, equally not to judge ourselves for those things we are reacting to that are difficult or painful, whether in the body, the heart, the mind, or in the world. As, as we do that, as we find that capacity, what we see is that by being more present, more open, more sensitive, and more tender, in fact, we become open to receiving so much that is nourishing, that is beautiful, that is sweet, that is uplifting to us, which we lose contact with when we close down, when we withdraw, when we disconnect, when we're lost in the stories in our minds that take us away from where we are. And so, although it's, it's scary, it seems risky to allow ourselves to soften, allow ourselves to open, it's like the risk of this openness, this vulnerability, this tenderness, is that we might lose our defensive boundariedness and, the, and become impacted more by life. And yet, the fear of it is as if somehow I'll be overwhelmed or I'll be like lost, dissolving into some undifferentiated mush. But actually what is revealed in it is a fluidity and an openness that isn't defended by armour, but that is indestructible in its ability to allow anything to pass through. And not resisting or protecting or holding a barrier against life, we actually discover a different kind of safety 
as we come to understand we have the capacity, which we didn't when we were infants and children, and when we hadn't yet learned how to access it as adults, but we can grow and develop the capacity to hold our life in its fullness, its sweetness, its tenderness, its sorrows and its joys. And we learn this just one moment, just one breath, just one experience at a time through our willingness to keep coming into contact with this. And this fluidity, this openness is also not just the place where we can begin to find deeper ease and well-being, but where we also start to sense and notice a, a quality of that openness that is unbound, that is not bound to our experience, that is not bound by our experience. Because we start to see that it's not what comes to us that's most important, but how we meet it, how we receive it, how we respond, how we understand it. And there's a, a freedom of the human spirit that is born in that understanding. That is not subject to the conditions of life in the world, which are not in our control, which of course we can impact, we can influence, but we can't determine the outcomes of what will happen in the world or ourselves or our lives, any more than we can ultimately determine what will happen with the next breath? Will I be present or not? But so far as we're practicing and cultivating and developing that capacity, it becomes much more likely that we will be able to be there. And so too in our life it becomes much more possible that we will have access to what we need. And this sense of, of possibility that comes with a sense of openness and freedom that when we're no longer in fear of or holding back from that uncontrollable, undefinable, ungraspable fluidity of life, it actually becomes something we bow to in its infinite sacred possibilities and potentials that can blossom in so many precious and beautiful ways that we do not yet know. So I'd like to uh, just finish with a poem by Thomas Tranströmer, a Swedish poet, uh, entitled Romanesque Arches. Obviously it's translated from the Swedish. Uh, Inside the huge Romanesque church, the tourists jostled in the half-darkness. Vault opened behind vault, disappearing behind each other, no complete view possible. A few candle flames flickered. An angel with no face embraced me and whispered through my whole body, Don't be ashamed of being human. Be proud. Inside you, vault opens behind vault, endlessly. You will never be complete. That's how it's meant to be. Blind with tears, I was pushed out onto the sun-drenched piazza, together with Mr. and Mrs. Jones, Mr. Tanaka, and Signora Sabatini. And inside them all, vault opened behind vault, endlessly. So what might be, what might it be for you? For each of us here to, to take this time, this invitation to explore your life, to explore this life and to see for oneself what the tenderness of our open hearts may offer, <coughs> what this openness of life may reveal that is boundless and unbounded. that is really the natural quality of the awakened heart and mind and that which can be known by us as human beings.
in this living generation as in all generations. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all find the courage and the capacity of heart in our lives that supports us to really touch deeply the tender and the sweet and the fullness of our lives and our experience to know for ourselves the unbounded openness which reveals peace and freedom for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings and all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.